Hey guys, this is Michael from the Signal Noise Podcast, and I'm here with Chris. What's up, Chris? Hey man, how's it going? I'm feeling like Oprah right now. <laughs> you get a prize. You get a prize. You get a prize. Everybody gets a prize. Well, maybe, maybe not everybody. Like maybe two or three, but it's all good. That's true. Chris, we got some cool giveaways and stuff, right? Yeah, thanks to our sponsor, Audix Microphones. Uh, they're donating a pair of A150 headphones, um, and we also have professional wireless systems have donated two, uh, either UHF or VHF. You can choose depending on what gear you're using. Um, inline RF filters. Uh, so that's some some pretty cool. Uh, some pretty cool prizes it is so make sure you check the link in the description of this episode for more information on how you can enter the giveaway to win cool stuff and with that i think uh on to the episode you are listening to the signal to noise podcast on the pro sound web podcast network sponsored by audix i wish i could break free back to where i'm supposed to be Welcome back, everyone. And you might think now that we're coming up on 50 episodes that we have now figured out how to work our equipment. But or, uh, or, 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 no, we're going to get better. Negative. negative. <laughs> it doesn't but, get any better than this. <laughs> but we have once again been thwarted by operator error. Uh, you know, Chris, he hit it hard. He came in with good energy, but he had his mic. Uh, it was not set up. So so now I think we have it all going. I, and- I, I know what happened. I know what happened. <laughs> I had to do video today and I'm just oh, I'm, that, I'm completely that, thrown off. I'm completely you, thrown off. You that'll get do back it. on. The, yeah, it's you got to you got to get your head right, man. That sounds um, like a lighting guy excuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and Kyle, you got your head in a, in a good headspace today. You're outside working on, on the landscaping. Is that uh, I mean. Let's hear about the the project, man. It's, it's big news. Uh, big news. Um, yeah, the cantaloupe garden's the, pretty cool. Yeah, failed at the the architectural lighting stuff. There's a company here in town that makes super cool stuff, and uh, yeah, DJ. I got to the second light. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What He's are fired up. Today? See what happens when he does lighting, man. We can't. We gotta. You what gotta get back on audio, dude. Yeah. <laughs> It's weird, man. <laughs> well, this episode we're joined by my friend Ryan John, who you know, and and I've I've completely been remiss in uh, preparing a bio for him, uh, but it's almost not even something I'm going to bother with because he's worked for so many um, huge, awesome pop artists that uh, it, it's a dizzying list. Um, I met him when he was doing front of house for I believe it was the Philip Phillips tour back in. What was that, Ryan? 2010? Uh, yeah, something like that. 2010, 10 years ago. 2011, somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, and I just wandered up to front of house, and I just started you know, belligerently asking questions, and Ryan answered every single one. And, uh, yeah, and I was, was going to say, I hope I was nice and polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that was 10 years ago, and uh, and here we are. So Mix Engineer And, and now I'm stars. no longer nice or polite or friendly. <laughs> In yeah. addition to, uh, you know, in addition to his his uh, amazing front of house uh, skills, he's also uh, he works uh, on live live audio for Avid. What's your official job title over there, right? I'm uh, technically principal product manager and principal product designer for everything live sound. It's uh, it's a little crazy. It, it is pretty crazy, man. And it's been really cool watching you kind of, you know, climb that ladder and, and, and do that cool stuff in the time that, that we've been friends and just all around cool guy. So we're really happy to have him here. Ryan John, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen. 
Um, <laughs> thanks for the applause. Appreciate it, guys. Kyle, yeah. Kyle's practicing for his job as a roller rink uh, MC and DJ, so we always got to do a little golf clap there when we can. <laughs> I am, man. It's been so long since I've I've done much. Like, I mean, I still mix. You guys are doing amazing by the way i want to jump in and do it but the mixed things and i've been listening to a ton of podcasts and uh yeah it's rad that's why our numbers um, are up thank you i appreciate it yeah, thank you, <laughs> i listened to the last one at least 24 times yes so you know what let's talk about the mixing thing uh ryan you came up with this really cool idea as far as i know you came up with it um, or, or at least you successfully <laughs> stole it, um, called Mix 45, in which you get a group of engineer friends together and you distribute, everyone's got the same set of multi-tracks and you factory reset your console. You start from a blank console and you have 45 minutes to get as far as you can with creating a show file and a mix. And um, yeah. I, I watched the video, you guys, you have a YouTube channel for this and uh, it was a lot of fun. And you, um, yeah, to kind of paraphrase your, your process, basically you, you do your mix and you come back and you talk about what the challenges were and sort of what, what the takeaways were. And then you, you listen to everybody's mixes and everybody comments. And um, I thought it was such a cool idea that I decided to do it myself with some friends and me and Samantha Potter and uh, Willa Snow and, uh, and my friend David Williams. We all did one together and, and uh, uh, we had a blast, man. It's such a cool idea to get you know to sort of have this uh communal roundtable approach to this and and talk about you know i'm interested in how you would approach it and I'm, right, here's how right. i would approach it and and see those different flavors man it was really really cool experience yeah we, we certainly live in a different time where we have the ability to not only virtual sound check and get these multi-tracks from great bands too it's not even like they're all no names it's really interesting stuff but also people have consoles in their house now you know, the fact that there are consoles that you can just buy as an engineer and keep at home and run virtual sound checks and do this. It's its really cool. Right. But but yeah, the process as a whole kind of came up because uh, a buddy of mine got his hands on a new desk and um, we were going to do a shootout on a real PA with a bunch of desks of us all just mixing together and then listening to it and kind of go through the desk. But then with the whole shelter in place thing happening we decided we'd do it remotely and instead of making it a shootout about the desk, just instead have fun mixing the same song. And you never really get to hear that many people mixing the same thing in the same amount of time with ultimately the same kind of tool set. So it was really cool to see what everyone paid attention to. When I go back and watch my video now, I'm like, I'm an idiot. How did I not do these things? How did I not do those things? How did I spend 22 of the 45 minutes on drums? You know, stuff like that. Well, that's that was really interesting to me, you know, because because I, you know, uh, I did the GoPro of myself for 45 minutes. And it's, it is on my, my YouTube channel if anyone wants to go check out the, the group session that we did and also the, the video Ooh. of me doing my mixing. And uh, maybe we can put that in the, in the link, Chris. Uh, sure. But but watching it back, because when you're doing it, you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going so slow and I, I, I got to do this. And you, your mind is 10 steps ahead of where you want to go on your console. And when I watched the tape back, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm flying. Like, um, And it's really <laughs> right. interesting to, to watch yourself work and see, you know, oh, OK, well, I, I struggled a little bit when I was trying to you know, set this busing up or, um, you know, like you said, I spent, I spent 22 minutes out of my 45 on drums. Holy cow. To sort of get that perspective on the mixing process is super helpful, man. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's funny cause now I've done a couple, 
and first of all, orchestrating it's it's annoyingly complicated because everybody needs to be able to record video. They also need to be able to record microphone of their talkback and separately record the board mix all the time while also be able, being able to run virtual playback. So it's, it's a bit complicated of a setup if you want to include all that stuff in it and do it in real time at the same time. So we've recorded a couple of them, but there was technical setbacks in every single one such that now only one of the episodes has actually come out. <laughs> but in all of them, I've kind of joined in as well, not as, you know, if you will, a contestant, but just as someone to just do it as well. So that when we talk about it, I understand the things that we're going through. What's been cool about the process is that every single one I've tried to approach as a completely different mixing style, uh, not necessarily in terms of, you know, final tonality, but like the second one, I decided, okay, everything is going to go through groups. And I'm going to try and do kind of the Robert Scoville-ish method of how things go through. And then the next one, I was like, oh, I'm going to try and do, I don't know, the pooch thing that him and Chris talked about. And I just, when you're limited down to 45 minutes, this is a terrible idea to try all these new things. <laughs> but it was kind of cool because it did give me a good, new, fresh perspective on what some of those techniques allow you to do quickly versus what some of the things I normally do, uh, you know, slow me down. So it, it was a good way to analyze how some of the ways other people do things can help me out in terms of quick access and things like that, rather than just doing them because I can, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was all about sort of you know, uh, this is your chance to experiment because, you know, it, it's rare that we do this type of thing where we're not on the clock, so to speak, or, you know, someone's not waiting for some sort of result or at a show. So, right. you know, like you said, I've been watching Pooch and, and Rabel talk about they love subgroups and, and I've never mixed through a lot of subgroups. So I said, all right, I'm going to set up subgroups for everything. I'm going to try that. So it was really nice to sort of just try a different approach. And, you know, I, I'm not ready to go out and change my main workflow to do that, but it was really cool to try it and see kind of how it worked. And, and the other thing, uh, you know, this is something you and I were talking about when we were listening back to the different mixes is you really go, Oh, okay. Wow. I like what you did with the drums. And, um, I like what she did with the background vocals. Like you, you hear different little bits, you know, uh, Samantha had something really cool with the bass that I heard. And I heard mm -hmm. a part in the bass line that I didn't hear in anybody else's mix. So when I heard her mix, I was like, oh, my gosh, I guess that line's been there the whole time. And I would just listen to it for 45 right. minutes and right. I didn't hear it. So so hearing, you know, I, I think it's important to say like, this is not about who's turning out the best mix. That's not the goal here. It's really about learning about everyone else's process and what they prioritized and, and the way they treated the different things. And, and I just had a blast. So I would encourage people to check that project okay out. okay okay i'll do it man dang <laughs> hey i invited you bro second, you were out bro. playing your cantaloupes <laughs> dude i'll do it he, he was starting his farm right now push <laughs> my arm bro so so two things one I, I think i think one of the exercises too is to realize um uh well damn it i i lost that <laughs> Shit. <laughs> the, video, right. the video stuff, man. You got to lay off of it. All right. All right. Well, I, I, I forget the first point I was going to make. Second point was, hey, I've seen this done like 10 years ago, right? So, um, uh, so, and no, in the real world, of um, two two things would happen. One, your console would crash on site and come back and you've lost your show file. Or, <laughs> right. or you know, back like, um, I've, I'll never forget, like, uh, you know, a 
PM five D days, right? And people forgot to put recall safe on, right? And this, oh. you know, and you get done sound check, man, everything's great, everything's great. A guy sets like the wireless handheld down on the top of the desk, it rolls down, hits recall, it's still sitting on zero zero, recalls oh, initial rec- recalls initial data, and you've <laughs> lost everything, right? And so that's a real world scenario um, of uh, of like this, of like, hey, and, and it really goes back to prior you know, the priorities of you know what matters most to get this thing up and going, not so much of like, well, how much how much parallel compression can i do and how much of this can i do you know it's more about mm. what are the essentials to get this thing off the ground definitely oh, I, mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. I remember i remember damn it i remember now <laughs> uh, i love it, i love listening to how engineers are so different how they hear the song you know what i mean yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. And, and i think i think that's the cool vibrational part about this thing is like uh, everyone hears the song differently so being able to listen to chris and scove and all these people that are doing these mixed things right now holy cow man like such an abundance to be learned just how you're listening to the song or listening to the band mm-hmm. so the, the the thing that i first meant to mention was uh uh, <laughs> uh listening back actually i listened back today to, to the chris and chris episode right and one of the things we talked about was like knowing knowing your tools right so i think that's another part of this is like how well do you know um, this console that you choose to do this on. And so right. the combination of the priorities with how well do you know your tool, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and getting that speed on, on, you know, diversifying the different, different tools you use. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of it for me. Cause it's not, cause uh, David didn't have access to his console at the time. So he was using a DAW and, you know, that really shed some light. We had a good discussion in the group afterwards about how different it is to approach this from a, you know, a physical console surface versus, versus a DAW. And it really does become a lot of this exercise is about how, how efficient are you working on your console? Um, and there's a ton of value to that. You know what I mean? And, and uh, you know, if you're finding yourself digging around for a setting or for a menu, um, you're wasting time. And so, you know, I think that's really illustrative. And uh, that was, that was, that was a really interesting part of it for me. Yeah. And I guess I have the unfair advantage there in that I designed my console. So <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't happen to too many engineers out there. Yeah, I don't think that comes up that often, you know? <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. I, you know what, though? I do. I do. We're going to we're going to kind of do a, a uh, one of those cinematic sort of we just we're going to cut back in time here. Um, and we are here. Is, I'm going to just read you a bit of Ryan's uh, Ryan's resume because because I feel bad because it's too cool of a resume to not touch on it at least Uh-oh. a little bit. So so uh, you did. Uh, front of house uh, or tour management slash production management, some combination of those tasks for Andy Grammer, Banks, Black Sabbath, Capital Cities, which I didn't know about until you updated your resume. I didn't hear about that gig. Cody Simpson, Group Love, that they're a lot of fun. Cody. Jesse J, Bieber, Magic, Mike Posner. You were front of house assistant on Paul McCartney, which we have to talk about because Paul McCartney, you know, uh, uh, Robin Thick, Phil Phillips. And, wait, wait, wait. And, and, and uh, Kyle's favorite, yes. Toblo. Tove low, bro. <laughs> man, she is and, great though, man. And we She's should so talk good. about that show too because it was just a really cool. It was a really cool time. Man, those songs, it's guilty pleasure, man. Oh, she's so good. So you know, good. it's the, the funniest thing about that show is that I I loved it. I loved everyone in the band. I loved the music. I loved all of it. But then I'd have you know friends or family come to the show, and there was a point in the show where she'd you know lift up her shirt. It was just it was just a thing that she did. And I'd always be for a moment like, uh oh, is my family gonna judge me because I'm hanging out with someone who does this? <laughs> oh. 
I mean, Dude, mine too. Like, I didn't mind. Like, it was, it was, it was fun to to see the crowd reaction to that. You know. So is, I got is, the, is she? I got, oh, go ahead. I'll let you get the get the. Uh, go ahead. The pressing questions in first, Kyle. Go <laughs> before the nerdy questions. stuff comes out. <laughs> yeah, like I got to mix for um, Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, just monitors. Oh, like man. Uh, my friend, I also my friend, love her, by the way. I, lo- I love my, her. My friend Pavan called me and was like, hey, dude, we really need a monitor guy. Our guy hurt himself, blah, blah, blah. I had to fill in for a show in Vegas at the Bellagio Theater. It was just one show. And, uh, dude, something about, like, it, Erase That Call Me Maybe song. You know what I mean? Listen to yep. everything else she did. And that's the same thing with Tove Lo. Like, if you heard her on the radio and you didn't like her, listen to the other stuff. That stuff, right. I bet you were grooving it from a house, dude. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that song Habits, yeah, it was all right, but that was the big single. But the whole rest of the record was so good. It was like proper groove, you know, really good sub bassy tones and just like a lot of thickness and roundness. And when they played it live, it had like, kind of big rock and roll feel for all the choruses. It was huge. Yeah, man. Uh, I use, I use uh, Talking Body for checking uh, low, low frequency extension on subs because there's like some yeah. stupid low stuff in yeah. there that a lot of the rigs can't do it, man. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. All my fanboy stuff at the beginning, dude. Like there's some insane stuff. Yeah. That That's a good show right there. Yeah, that was it was a really fun one too because I don't know. Have you seen the show? No, I kept wanting to come out. How many oh, inputs man. was it? Uh, it wasn't crazy. If I recall, it was like 45, maybe 50 inputs. It wasn't nuts. But there are two full drum kits on stage, right? Yeah, that's what I and, figured. I saw some video. And both of them are playing uh, not just live kit, but also drum samples and sounds. So one drummer might be playing the basic groove. The other drummer is playing kind of the percussive music that made the songs and in like in between the percussive music stuff, he's also filling in some drum fills that the other drummer is kind of just four on the flooring through. Uh, so in addition to that, like there's, you know, multiple keyboards and there is a little bit of playback. They tried to remove pretty much all the playback, but there were a couple things that they couldn't get to do tempo sync on things like uh, keyboards that should be swelling in time and they couldn't get the actual live keys to do it, so we ended up just putting it back on track because it just was physically impossible. But just based on the way the whole thing was built, the lead portion of any given song could have been coming from six or seven different places. So it wasn't as easy as going, oh, yeah, it's this one keyboard. That's where the lead line is. It could have been from an SPD or it could have been from something else, and it was all over the place. It was, it was mayhem. Did you have a lot of uh, scenes set for that show? yeah um song by song and multiple in song or just ripping song to song it was a couple per song also this was the first time ever that an sxl had been taken on tour because this was four months before the console came out and i was taking it out basically as a beta tester that was a little terrifying to be honest yeah yeah i did that i did that with the midas pro 6 pro when it came out like it it was uh, it's scary yeah, I mean, I ended up finding some serious issues, uh, but very fortunately, when you also know all the issues that can come up, or at least know what to be careful with, you don't end up getting yourself in trouble during the show. You get yourself in trouble during, you know, sound checks or virtual sound checks or that kind of stuff. That's where you really play. Were you uh, dual counseling it? 
I did. Yeah, I had a I had an S3L sitting next to me that I was actually using in a really interesting setup. Our monitor guy was on an S3L, and I had an S3L front of house, and they were you know game shared. And then at the stage, we actually had an analog split also going into the SXL system. But my S3L had a kind of backup show file that I had built just in case the console had an issue. I could press one button on it, and it turned off all the inputs from the S6L and switched over to S3L feeding the PA. And the way I had that routed was was I had the main S6L desk going through it via AES, and I basically used the S3L as like a kind of PA management system. But if anything went nuts, I could mute those inputs and unmute the actual live stage inputs. Did the lighting guy finally make fun of you for like, haha, you have to have a backup console like I do because all my lighting <laughs> consoles don't work. <laughs> I, it, 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 it drives me nuts that it's acceptable in the lighting world that it's a known thing that you have to have a backup because at some point your lighting desk is going to fail. And like that's just an mm-hmm. acceptable thing in the lighting world. That just blows me away, which I know we're, I'm derailing here. but No, no, because I, I made that comment before with, with my lighting guys on, on my recent tours. I'm always like, how come you have two slash three consoles with you all? All the time why do you need this and you know mind you they they cost one tenth what on what an audio console costs so i guess it makes it a little bit easier that, to do that, it. that that should not make yeah. an excuse for something that's like, not a justification i know no. i have to have a backup because at some point i know this thing's going to die like that's just a no <laughs> that's a, a no thing in the lighting world like it's bullshit like that's that would You're never be that acceptable okay. that would that's never totally be acceptable, acceptable in audio or video for that matter yeah. like well, why like, you know, why is that there, there's one thing I get about it, and that's that if the console turns off, for the most parts, the lights just stay doing what they're doing. So you can kind of get away with it. If an audio console, the whole system turns off, you just don't get audio anymore. Right. So it's so like, that, that, I not mean, that I'm justifying it. No, it. I'm not no, justifying that's exactly it. That's what it is. No, you're, that's what it is, though, because my, my, my buddy, uh, we work at a theater, and they have an, an old screwed-up console from manufacturers shall not be named for lighting, and, and this <laughs> thing throws error messages like it's being paid to do it. So he's had multiple times to restart his console during a show, and no one oh, knows. Boy. And I always just look at him because he just, he just you know, it just does it, and he comes back up, and he's like, okay, I'm back, <laughs> and on, on we go. <laughs> but I'm like, dude, if I had to restart the audio rig, like, do you have any idea how insane that would be if I had to do that <laughs> during this show? Like, it's just not even on the right. same planet. So, uh, no, that's I, – I really would love to talk about um, the vocal chain for Tovlo because I spent a lot of time watching concert footage and her TV stuff that she does, and it's a really rich, processed, amazing sound, but it doesn't sound over-processed. It doesn't sound over-compressed. It really breathes. It has life and sparkle, but um, there's some there's some cool stuff going on in there that I would have said would have been pretty tricky to do live, but you did it, man. So so what's, what's the secret, you know? Give it away. Man, <laughs> I, I think... First of all, I think her vocal used up something like 16 effect sends. It was probably well, the most, <laughs> it was probably the most I've ever done on any show. Now, mind you, they're not all on all the time, but there's so much vocal production on her record that trying to capture as much of that as possible live obviously is going to take up a lot of you know various different style processors. You know, from overdrives to choruses to phases that turn on here and there. Uh, there's three or four different delays. There's a couple different verbs. But also, on top of that, um, Tove was really into uh, wanting to be more, uh, I don't know, how do I describe this, uh, 
hands-on with being a musician in the show, you know? Yeah, she writes it. Yeah, she sings on it. But she wanted to have more to do. And this was the first tour ever where someone pulled out a vocal effects pedal, and I was like, this is actually a good idea. (laughs) So... And, you know, we spent time to go through the presets and stuff that she had, and we basically pulled it back so that what she had going on in that pedal was just stuff that she could control, kind of like manual delay throws and stuff like that. Um, So I did get, I believe, a dry vocal feed, but I never ended up using it. I think I had the dry vocal feed just in case if something ever went wrong with that pedal. But she was controlling a good amount of the delay throws and um, a couple of the effects. It was, it was actually quite cool. And it's, again, it's the first time ever that that has been a thing and it worked really well for me versus all the other instances where I've had someone pull out a vocal pedal and it was just a nightmare. So let's talk about that for our listeners who may be working with bands, um, particularly bands that play in, you know, bars, clubs, small rooms, um, bands that maybe aren't used to having somebody mix them is where I think a lot of people run into, Hey, I brought my own vocal effects pedal. So, I mean, right. l- maybe we can dig into some strategies there. You know, I had an experience, um, one of the bands I work with regularly, um, I- I'm very fortunate in that the guitar player will say, Hey, let's sit down and let's go through my pedal board and let's go through my tones and we'll both put the in-ears in and we'll listen back and we'll make, you know, the- it's a, it's a joint decision. And we end up with something that sounds really good and I don't have to go chase it at the console. Um, but the the drummer bought himself a, a vocal processor, and uh, he goes, "Watch this, Mike." <laughs> he turns his he turns his reverb on, and the problem here is when you're sitting in your living room with your mic and your headphones, you can get these crazy effects that sound really neat by yeah. themselves. But when you yeah. put them in a mix with 32 other things, his vocal was just immediately just buried. It was just gone. You know, it receded into the background. And I said, "See, uh, you know, so we need to, you know." And I think that's where the musician will benefit from the context of the sound engineer who's used to listening in terms of how is this going to play a part in the whole mix? Um, Yeah, I I think exactly what you pointed out there is the big problem is that most people are building their presets in headphones in a bedroom and headphones in a bedroom. You can compress the crap out of the vocal. You can do extreme EQ. You can do all sorts of verbs, delays that are really dense, you know, exactly as you described. I think the biggest problem that most people seem to hit is when they start turning on things like compressors and harmonic and and saturation and stuff, because that is so varied from, you know, headphones versus a PA. And I think that shouldn't ever really be something coming off of the pedal from the stage. And that should be something that's tailored to each show. If, you know, if that's appropriate, does that make sense? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think these these units some of them have a perhaps undeserved reputation for being in you know, like you know the joke is the feedback generator. Oh, you brought your feedback generator. Um and I think it's <laughs> it's exactly that, I've you know, that. if you <laughs> So so it, it you're you're the the tools that people go in there and think are really cool, super long reverbs, super heavy compression with, you know, auto gain makeup, saturation. You are doing all of the things that when you get into a small room and already have a game before feedback problem will make that problem worse. I mean, you absolutely. Yeah. So so it's sort of you're sort of stacking the deck against yourself when you do that type of stuff. And I think that's I think, you know, and I'm not saying don't use a vocal effects pedal live, but I'm saying. If you're an artist who is interested in doing that, I think it should be a dialogue 
with the sound engineer who understands, you know, technically what needs to happen so you don't have a failure on stage and also artistically what needs to happen so the mix remains balanced and people can still hear what you're singing about. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what made this work so well on on that Tove Low tour is that we did get to sit and have that conversation and she limited what was on her pedal to things that were incredibly relevant to that moment in that song. Um, you know, if if it needed to have a super tight slap back on two words in that section. She would put it on and she would hit that button and then hit it back to go normal. Um, and it's not because I wasn't able to do it. It's because she wanted to be involved in the process and she wanted to be able to press the buttons and be a little bit more um, active and in, engaged in the musicianship of the show, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that, I think that's a great uh, situation when we're, when we're lucky enough uh, that the artists, you know, wants to be involved i i love and pooch said this too when we had him on the show he's like i i love when the artist wants to be involved in their sound you know that those are the those are the things that i get excited about working on um yeah the people definitely. that go yeah make me sound good you know yeah i'm gonna go out there and i'm gonna give them a good mix but i mean it's a much more rewarding job and, I, and i'm really echoing pooch here almost verbatim but but i you know I, I i believe it sincerely it's much more rewarding for me when it's a collaborative process yeah and i i agree 100 and it's funny because I have seemed to work for a lot of people that are famously hard to deal with. <laughs> I've been I've been very fortunate. I've never had problems with dealing with them, but you know that many of them have a reputation for being a bit of a pain. And it's not because they're a pain, but it's because they have strong opinions about how they want their show to sound. And if you approach it in a way where you go, "I want to serve you and your music," I mean, this is a service industry, then whenever they give you a suggestion for how they want it to be, if you don't take it personally and you just achieve it, you can end up in a spot where both of you are happy and both of you are really excited. I mean, you get some of your best ideas from that. Because if I just mix every show exactly the same as the previous show, it's not going to be exciting for me. It's not going to be interesting. So it's cool to have that extra, you know, uh, insight. Yeah, that, and that's that's something like um, maybe it's more in the model world, but it's same in front of house. Eddie Kaipo had mentioned this, and others like you know, like Eddie Kaipo was like, if you would if you listen to some of my IEM mixes, you'd be like, what the hell are you doing, right? <laughs> but but it, the, the the point is, it's like it, it doesn't matter whether I like how this physically sounds right now. It matters how this artist likes it, and so, same thing for the front of house too. It's like you know, at the end of the day, you know, you didn't you know you Ryan or you Michael whoever you you guys didn't make this music, you didn't record this music, you know, you didn't write this music. You're just supposed to to be we're supposed to be translating a medium of of them getting their expression out and we should not be in uh, uh, inhibiting that we need to be embracing that and, and if they want us to emulate something to do something then by all means we're working for them and i think sometimes people um you know i, can, I second can get, chris too yeah, I think some people can get in their own way there. And like, look, are there things that we can do to enhance things like like delay and things like that? And, you know, I always joke that like my one, you know, my one instrument that I play is delay. Right. You know, um, but even 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 some of that, it's like, um, you know, if if, if you Don't go mess with if, my art, man, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but just because I like it doesn't mean it actually enhances the show. You know, and, and, and at some point could be a detriment to the show. So I think that's, you know, a lesson to be learned there is that, like, you know, ultimately, like, hey, if, if the artist wants something, you know, like you said, you know, it's not just the fact they're being an asshole, but like, hey, they have every right to be an asshole. Like their whole life has been poured into creating this art and they don't want us to get in that way. Right. Yeah. I, and I think I think, you know, uh, hello, whose name's on the ticket? Not mine. You know right, what I mean? Right. So that's, you know, that's, that's the, that's the end of it. And, and now that doesn't mean that, that I just go like, 
you just say yes, 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 and you do whatever because I think I think there's a risk there too. I think you know at least the jobs that I try to get involved with are jobs where. Uh, my opinion matters and my feedback matters. And, you know, I am counted on to contribute uh, thoughts and discussions and how do we uh, make this better, right? You know, and 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 be a part of that dialogue. So I don't want to be a passive observer. Um, right. You know, I think right. I think we have a role in, in, in saying, okay, let's have a talk about here's what's working well. Here's what I think could be improved. And maybe that's something I need to do in the mix. Maybe that's, we need to change a mic. Maybe that's a, you know, let's, that's a performance thing that, but let's, let's all have a seat at that table, but let's not forget who, you know, whose table it is. Right. Right. I I think one of the important things is to never bring up a challenge you're having to an artist as a reason to not do something they want. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you get input from all sorts of people. I've gotten inputs from some artists I've worked for where they clearly don't actually know what they're saying. You know, they're saying, you know, I, you, can you add, you know, 20 dB of 16 K to my vocal? That's not what they want. They really yes, don't I want can. that. Mm. Well, I can, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's about translating that request to what it actually means. And sometimes all it means is that they want you to know that you're paying attention. And sometimes it means they want something changed. But then on the total opposite end of things, and I'm happy to call these guys out, Capital Cities, those dudes uh, produced, mixed, recorded their own records, and their records sound amazing. So when they came out into the crowd uh, during soundcheck and gave me a suggestion, I would do exactly what they said to a T, and it would make it sound better immediately. They unquestionably knew exactly what they wanted and what they were doing. Right. So there's there's two ends there, and you as an engineer, I guess, need to be able to translate whether the words are literal or whether the words are kind of figurative and mean something else. But one thing I've found that helps me to kind of build a trust with an artist is that every single day, every single show, I drop my board mix in uh, a, a Dropbox. And my artist, artist manager, the MD, all have access to the Dropbox, Dropbox. So every single day they can go back and listen to it. And, you know, they can come to me the next morning and say, hey, there was this one moment in this one song. Can we you know, go through this? Fortunately, we have virtual sound checks, so I can do it with them sitting right next to me and sort it out. But the fact that it's in there every day kind of just leads them to trust you because you're not really hiding anything anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it certainly helps. I mean, that's to make an analog to mixing monitors. And I don't mix a lot of monitors, but when I do, one of the things I've found is it's awesome. The more well, oh, <laughs> what I do, it's, awesome. it's not my favorite. I'll say that. So the more eye contact I make with an artist, the less they ask me for, and I think right, it's because they they feel that I'm paying attention and that I'm listening critically and I'm doing my thing, and they don't need to worry about it. Um, if 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 they look over at me and I'm on my phone or I'm digging through, you know, uh, the snacks or something, and and they all of a sudden are alone you have out snacks? there. I always have snacks, chocolate canola bars. <laughs> um, a, a lot of the, the a lot of the shows I mix monitors on are the, with the same system tech, and so we have a thing. He knows that if I'm working the show, he's going to get a granola bar out of it. You know, so, I do want to yeah. say, I do want to say as as a massive interruption here. Next time I design a console, I want to put one of those little secret trays like the lighting guys have, where they hide all their candy. And you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Well, Cookie. maybe that too. Yeah, probably that too. Maybe that's why they that need backup consoles because it melts. <laughs> it melts into the console. Melted chocolate, console. Or, the, or just yeah. more, more snacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, I, I think, I think the fact that they feel secure be, 
because I'm paying it. They see me paying attention. They see me, you know, engaged in the show. Um, they see me dedicated to their mix. Um, I think they stop worrying about it and they get on with their performance. And so they, they're, they're comfortable that they're being taken care of. And so they don't ask me for as much stuff. So it's sort of the same thing, Ryan, in a, in a way where it's just, hey, make let people know that that you're committed to this and that they are they are right to trust you and that you're going to take that trust seriously. Yeah. And they, they you know, can go on and do their job. And, and I'll say just from seeing it happen, I feel like it's pretty common for monitor engineers to talk to an artist after a show and ask them how it went, mm-hmm. ask them if anything can be better. But I feel like front of house engineers don't do that very often, and they really should. And I, I understand the pizza on the bus, artists. bro. Straight to the pizza <laughs> on the bus. You know how it is. Don't be kidding anybody. Straight to the pizza first. Buffalo Wild Wings, whatever it is. <laughs> I, I understand, though, that the artist is not in front of the PA and doesn't hear it in the same way as they hear monitors. But it still affects them, especially if you've got you know massive thrusts coming out from the stage. Mm-hmm. Or if maybe even just something frequency-wise is bothering them. Or if there's just some note that they remembered from some YouTube video they watched two days ago or Instagram something that they wanted to mention to you. Either way, it helps build your relationship and trust. You know, it's really easy to be the 150 feet away and just go, oh, they're on stage. You know, let's not worry about them. I'm going to do me. But I don't think that's the right way to really approach it. True. I mean, nowadays, Ryan, don't you see, I mean, this was a thing. I had to make CDs every night. Um, yeah, so I remember doing that. That was, that was an artist that really cared. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, dude, like they take YouTube comments off of cell phone videos personally you know what i mean like right right the times have changed and it kind of came with virtual sound check and be able to get a recording every night you know you remember when we started like it was hard to just hey man can you record my left right oh no man i don't have no cables for that Um, so (laughs) it, it has been easier for the artist to be able to request that stuff and i remember the first time like an actual producer came to a show I mean, that was, that was thrilling as well. And I remember the last time we did an episode, you had, you had mentioned talking to the recording engineer and having an amazing story like that. I'll I'll never forget that, dude. That was one of the coolest thing. And I think nowadays when artists really do give a shit about what they sound like, it's people like you that keep getting the gig. You know what I mean? It's amazing that we're able to do this now. Yeah. All right. I'd like to hope I keep getting the gig. (laughs) Yeah, man. Well, no, Ryan, you said something to me like probably seven or eight years ago, you know, and it was about that. It was about, you know, how do you get this gigs? How, how do how do you, you know, how are you the guy that gets the call and not the next person? Right. And and what you said was, I'm a decent sound engineer, but people feel like they can talk to me. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's, what, that's what you said. And so it's not all about, you know, and I think, I think Raybold said this and a couple people on the show said this, you can have the best mixes in the world, but if you're a jerk and people feel like they can't approach you and they can't work with you, they're not going to call you. Um, so, <laughs> so, so it's not all listen up kids, Kyle, tell them attention kids. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not all about your you know fancy reverb plugins and making sure that y- your mix is is the you know it's not all about blowing everybody else out of the water your mix now that's important you got to be able to get a good sound but but that's not the whole puzzle and if people don't feel like they can have a good working relationship with you if the artist doesn't feel like they can trust you or they can bring something up to you um you know there's gonna be a day when you're not getting back on the bus greyhound yeah. ticket maybe 
Yep. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that, that, that has kind of evolved for me is now, if anyone ever asks, I go 22 hours of the day is the hang, two hours of the day is the show. If people don't like having you around, it doesn't matter if your two hours are epic. <laughs> oh, real. Real yeah. shit right there. And, and, you know, the other thing is, is that I don't think I've gotten a gig in the past four or five years that wasn't ultimately through somebody I know. Yeah, maybe I submitted a resume or something like that to get a gig, but then they called someone and they're like, oh, yeah, you should definitely hang, hang with Ryan. You guys, all, you guys all have a great time. So at the end of the day, if people don't love having you around, it almost doesn't matter if you're a smashing mixer. Yep. And that's sort of the great, it's, I think that's sort of the elephant in the room because, you know, I see probably once or twice a month on, on different audio forums, someone will go, hey, you know, can you guys look at my resume? And yeah, I'll, you know, I'll look at it, but that's, that's just not how these decisions are made in this industry by and large. It, 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 now, on the manufacturing side of things, you know, if you're applying for a marketing position or sales position, yes. But in terms of getting on the tour bus, no. Uh, that They're not asking for your resume. They don't care where you went to school. That's not how these things happen. Um, it's, 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 it's word of mouth and it's going, oh yeah, I know, I know Ryan, I trust him. Uh, I, you know, he can, he can do this. And, and that's, at least in my experience, that's pretty much how these things happen. Yeah. And the other thing is that, uh, sometimes I get asked my resume after they've said, yeah, you have the job, uh, just because they say, oh yeah, we need to keep it on file for management. <laughs> and then anything that's on your resume, expect them to know somebody that worked on that tour or worked with that camp. They're going to call them. So if you say, lie. you know, I, I was with X band for, for a whole tour. You know, I, I'm I actually, I still get these calls. Um, there are a couple artists who will hit me up when they're trying to staff and they say, Hey, can you just look at this resume and just, you know, if you know the guy or whatever, just let me know. And I'll see some stuff. And I was like, I was on that tour. I have no idea who this guy is. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It gets real interesting. He was a loader on the fifth truck, um, and For he was stacking show. cases. Yeah, no. <laughs> hey, I got a I got a white pony local crew shirt. Cool. <laughs> I wish I had that shirt, man, dude. I that got some good shirts. Yeah, I got some really, really good shirts, and and I think that's one of the cool things that keeps me hanging out in this business a lot is just doing everything. Still, like sometimes you need to change it up and it's it's fun to look at this from all aspects like um you've definitely production managed before which is insane um i don't understand how the best of the best do that thing and and tour managing like no way jose i was yeah i hate tour managing <laughs> i was not good but definitely that 90 minutes a night kind of solved my problems of having to take a bucket of ice to the back lounge you know um, right so but yeah, man, it, it it does come to who you know, and I think uh, times like these, like you just need to stretch out your your availability. And it's cool that you set up this mix forty five. See how I sidetracked you all the way back to the beginning. Wow. <laughs> so you're wow. gonna do it an episode? You're gonna do it? Yes. That was quit. quit. I'm done. I'm doing it. I'm doing I, it. Man, <laughs> I, I was harassing him bad too. I, I put him on the email chain yeah. that well, we were doing. I put him on the text thread, and and uh, he's but I, okay, yeah. And it's no, not, I think, it, uh, <laughs> dude, it sounds so fun. Are you kidding me? It's like, a blast, man. It's a blast. Like, you know, truth I mean, is, I think, I think people should just do it in general. Like just people get your friends together and just do it. Just set up 45 minutes. You know, all these sessions that I've been pulling for it have been from the Telefunken website because they're all, you know, license free. You can post yeah. them on YouTube, things like that. And there's tons of them. There's four seasons worth of them. Some of them go from, you know, small three piece band to 
10 piece with horns and all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of options, but just get your friends together and do this and then use it as a time to learn from everyone. Really? Yeah, man. Like I said, hearing the art of everyone's mix is probably one of the coolest things that I could listen to that stuff for. I've listened to both Michael's, what they got, what they did and yours. And I was like, everybody's take on the mix was what they heard. So cool, man. Damn. Like you can learn a ton from that. You know what was crazy is so my buddy David, who was one of the ones on, on my group, he's a really, really good system tech. And um he's like me, we're system techs, but we get roped into mixing sometimes. So we we feel like we should probably practice so we can do yeah, it. It works the other way around for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. So so uh, <laughs> David listens to Willa's mix and he goes, How big are the rooms that you usually mix in? And she's like, Oh, you know, small clubs, a couple hundred oh, people. He yeah. goes, Yeah, I could hear that. So he could hear the way she treated the vocal that her context for mixing live is you know, when you're in a room that small, it's all about getting that vocal on top and getting it clear and getting it intelligible. And he heard that in her mix. And that was a really interesting moment to me when I realized how much of our workflows is and the way control. we approach things, well, it, yeah, is, is <laughs> yeah. shaped by, uh, you know, the environments in which we work. And and that's a really, really interesting kind of tidbit that came out of that. And we, there were a couple of those little gems throughout our conversation. So people who are you know, if you're looking for 45 minutes to do something interesting, go watch this video. And, and it's a yeah. really, really cool discussion that we had. I'm really glad we did it. Yeah, yeah that was the comment I pointed out that he made, too, because it was just it was a really intelligent, smart comment. But even that comment itself made me realize about something the way I mix. When you mix arenas, you typically go light on the low, low mids, you know, the the 100 to 250 range, because that's where the arenas themselves start bringing out. Yeah, when man. you mix 2,000 seat cap clubs, you can go a lot flatter because they're just a different kind of space. And I've now, since hearing that comment, went back and listened to a bunch of my things, and I was like, "Wow, this is just now how I mix." Right. It's it's uh, it's been affected by what I expect uh, the environment <laughs> it to be played in is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's actually something I was going to ask you is, um, you know, having to be basically, if I like my terms, accountable to your two track that you're printing every night off of your desk, you know, to the artist or to whoever. Um, how much uh, when that when that started to become more of a thing, how much did that affect your relationship either uh, with your system tech or what you had to do to the system, depending on what type of tour you were on um, and making sure that that system really was transparent. And that way you're not making changes that are because of the room, you know, you can actually do your thing. Well, that's an interesting one. And I think it actually goes back to something that, that Michael and I had talked about 10 years ago. Um, I, tune my system in such a way that this actually probably lines up with some of the previous podcasts you guys have gone through. It's pretty darn flat. Um, it is not a massive haystack in the low end and it is not just, you know, angled, if you will, with, you know, decibels per octave kind of dropping off across the whole frequency spectrum. And when I check a PA system, I play a little bit of music, some stuff I'm used to, but really quickly I switch to playing my shows you know, be it, uh, typically I actually run instrumental only recording of the show because if we're doing outdoors or arenas, I don't want the crowd that's standing outside waiting in line for hours before the show, because for some reason they show up at eight in the morning, even though we're not even there yet. Um, I don't want them to hear the vocal and even have the possibility of thinking that the vocal is on track. Right. It's, it's just one of those things that people assume these days, you know, people are so ready to rip apart any artist these days. So I just, I remove that possibility, but by using that, 
I kind of tune the PA to make sure the show sounds good for my show. Um, but in terms of how it's affected me building the mix as a whole, by providing these mixes every single day, I know that my MD is going to listen with a microscope, at least for the first five shows. After those five, I, I'm probably trusted for the rest of the tour, unless something goes you know, really awry or something new comes up. But it really does make me make sure that the separation between instruments is just unreasonably clear. Uh, I basically have to treat it like I'm mixing a record. But at the end of the day, when you're in venues where the stage volume itself doesn't realistically affect your show, you kind of should have that approach anyways. You know, because mm -hmm. you, you have the opportunity and you have you have so much control that you can do that. So if we're tuning our PA to a record, why not make the output of my desk sound basically like a record? Yeah. And then, so the other thought of that too is, and this is like more of a, um, a mixing philosophy is uh, I imagine with, you know, printing a record like that, you know, you're doing a fair amount of, of, of panning in, in a spectrum. So uh, a lot of people have different approaches to that in terms of a system um, and the thought process of uh, uh, the difference between, everyone getting the same show or just dealing with it. Not everyone's going to get quite the same show and I, and I get the spectrum. So how do you approach, um, uh, how wide you go with panning and how severe you do that to create a very dynamic stereo spread show, but then maybe also, you know, worry about the people who are off far to left and right. So uh, it's an interesting one because there is only a certain subset of crowd and venue size where that really matters. Because if you're below, let's say, a thousand cap, everybody's going to hear both sides of the PA, realistically. Mm -hmm. And then once you're above, you know, into large scale arenas, you might have outfills that are inverted left right. So, you know, you've got outfill that is technically the right side of the mix, followed by main PA left, followed by main PA right, that's followed by outfill that's the left side of the mix. So everyone kind of gets a bit of stereo there. Then there's the in between, or maybe outdoor festivals or something like that, where there is just a left-right PA, and there is a huge amount of crowd that hears only one and only the other. So in terms of general panning, there are only a couple things that in my mix typically get panned off-center that aren't actually on both sides. And it might be toms, and it might be drum overheads, but even those, they're not all the way out. But I won't take a guitar and stick it on the left side if the right side is not also getting it. Um, I won't take a keyboard and stick it on one side if the other side's not getting it. I might move it a little bit to one side, but I won't go anywhere past, let's say, 20% of the way there. So surprisingly, my mixes are more mono than you'd ever think. Um, and at home on my little monitor rig here, I've got a little mono button so I can press that and hear what it sounds like in mono. And for the most part, there's not a huge difference there with one exception. I do a bunch of MS processing on my uh, band bus. And that makes it feel really stereo without actually removing or adding elements to one side or the other. So if you're in front of only one side of it, you still hear the whole mix. But if you're in front of the other side, you still hear the whole mix. If you're in the middle, it feels really wide. And what is MS busing? So MS processing, meaning, you know, mid side processing, as opposed to, you know, let's say if you put a compressor on a channel that is stereo, your options may be so that one side of the compressor is affecting left, the other side is affecting right. The other option would be 
uh, one side of the compressor is affecting the mid of the mix and the other side is affecting the side of the mix. Um, it's kind of, it's just a processing method that is, you know, similar to the microphone recording method of using a mic that is picking up everything in the center and then a mic that is picking up the side information and, you know, you do polarity shifting in order to kind of put it together. But the perk of doing that is you can affect only the things that are in the middle of the mix, such as, let's say, kick, snare, uh, I don't know, lead guitar or something like that. And what I do in my show is I use MS processing to make the whole band bus duck the mid only of certain frequencies when the vocal comes in so that the vocal always has space cut out of the middle of the mix when the vocal's singing. Um, what I like about it is not only does it mean I always have space for the vocal, but it also means I can put the vocal more into the mix rather than well on top of it. And also when the vocal stops, the band fills in that space. So it doesn't feel like there's an empty hole there. It just feels like it's kind of dynamically moving in and out where there's always space for the vocal, but something always takes up that space when there is no vocal. Makes a little sense. Has, has, um, in terms of pure, just on the panning side, um, has an artist ever listened back to your board and, and commented on, Hey, things aren't wide enough or too wide and stuff like that. Or is it as, as panning never really been a, a, a topic of conversation with an artist? It hasn't really come up. I'm, I'm trying to think of the instances where I would want to pan something, you know, well off to a side. Like, let's say I've got, you know, hard rock or a metal act and I've got two guitars. Um, and I, they, they would just otherwise kind of sit right on top of each other. I guess that's an instance where I probably would want to pan them a little bit. But at the same time, this, this hits the, the exact example you just kind of mentioned. If the crowd's off to the left, I don't want to feed them the stage right guitar only. And if the crowd's off to the right, I don't want to feed them the stage right guitar only. But if we jump back to the kind of smaller scale venues, if we're under a thousand cap and we're dealing with actual guitar amps on stage, in those scenarios, if there's a mm -hmm. stage right guitar amp that is really loud, I will pan the actual microphone of it to the opposite side. Because hmm. then whoever's on that side of the, yeah, the crowd will hear the actual amp and then the other guitar through the PA. So those, yeah, it's not really an issue I've kind of hit that much, but it, there are ways, ways to make it work. Well, there you go, Chris. You're uh, all ready for another day as a video guy. Uh, damn it. <laughs> all set up. Stereo all video, ready. man. Stereo video. That's right. You could even rollerblade from station to station. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan, I, I want to make sure people who are interested in the Mix 45 concept um, and want to see your video or my video or get more information about the project. Um, I think what we will do is put those links in the description of this podcast so folks can can check that out. And uh, I mean, how else, if folks are interested in what you're doing, how else can they keep up with you? Uh, my social media, everything is just Ryan O. John. So, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, probably YouTube, all those things, just Ryan O. John. Even my own website is ryanojohn.com. Makes it pretty easy. Um, and the there's, there's even the, the odd picture of, of your dog on there, too. My girlfriend yeah. really enjoys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's got his own Instagram account. It's called Conversations with Sherlock. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I don't think it. she knows that, I'll but I'm going to have to no. tell her. <laughs> uh, it's, he's, he's a cutie. And, and I always kind of write these captions as if he's talking like an intelligent British fellow. And it's an Instagram? Yeah, Conversations with Sherlock. It's 
pretty silly. Go in there. I'm now. pretty sure he only has like 15 followers. So maybe after this podcast, he might actually, you know, reach, you know, elite status. But till then, well, you just you just got Kyle Turnside to follow you. So there, there you go. 16. <laughs> so we we haven't hit our quota of food on this episode, Ryan. What's your favorite uh, place to eat on the road? Oh man, you know. <laughs> It's different for every city, and I actually use an app to figure it out. Um, you ever heard of an app called Chef's Feed? No. Ooh, that sounds so, delicious no matter what. It's it's Ooh, an app delicious. where every city, or well, maybe not every city, but many cities, uh, most of the major cities in the U.S. and a lot of you know mainland Europe, um, but maybe not the rest of the world. Uh, famous, famous chefs from those area, areas will write their favorite restaurants to go to, and specifically – their favorite meal at those favorite restaurants. So you can just, you know, scroll through and go, Oh, I'm in, you know, Orlando, Florida. And when you pull up Orlando, Florida, you'll see a list of maybe 20 different meals. So it's not just throwing you a restaurant. It's throwing you a specific meal to get there. And there will be a famous chef having written their review of why that meal is the best thing to get there. Wow, It's pretty cool. You end up with some really good stuff and it's not all like, you know, Michelin star expensive stuff. Some of them are like taco shops and it says, you know, the cilantro bass taco is the one. Now, now we're talking. It's it's very cool. It's very cool. Well, now, now I feel more uh, reassured that we did hit all, hit all the points for this episode. We got the the food in there. Ryan, thanks so much for, uh, for coming to talk to us, dude. It was a lot of fun having you on. It was really good to talk to you again. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's, It's fun to listen to the podcast. I think I can skip listening to this episode. (laughs) <laughs> no, you oh, have to listen to it at least Kyle's 20 good. times to keep our charts. You got to keep okay, it. Okay, okay. Kyle's sitting at home on the couch listening to our podcast. Just letting it rip, bro. <laughs> Thanks, guys.